Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by Meet Cute Bookshop, a queer-owned feminist bookstore focusing on genre romance. It's a place for romance readers and the romance curious to meet up, hang out, and generally get nerdy about kissing books. Come accidentally bump into the swoony, zany, angsty, steamy book you didn't know you were looking for. Find us at meetcutebookshop.com. And we're brought to you by BrainLair Books, a black-owned, woman-owned children's bookstore located in South Bend, Indiana. At BrainLair, we partner with local schools and universities to help build an inclusive, welcoming community. We specialize in juvenile and young adult literature written by and for black, indigenous, people of color, LGBTQIA+, and disabled communities, as well as adult nonfiction about ending white supremacy, promoting anti-racism, and becoming a social activist. We can help you find the books you need. Drop by or browse online at shop.brainlairbooks.com. In December 2020, the New York Times released an article entitled, quote, Just How White is the Publishing Industry? I'll link to it in our show notes, but the gist was this. White people account for only 60% of the United States population, but in any given year, they published overwhelmingly, like the most books of anyone. We're talking 89 and 90% of them. Like many of you, I spent a lot of time at home in 2020, and I remember reading this article and then turning around to see how my own bookshelves stacked up. Sure, like any good English major, I had Toni Morrison gracing my shelves and James Baldwin and Jhumpa Lahiri, but despite my progressive politics and assumptions about myself as a widely and wisely read individual, I was also embarrassed to be part of the statistics. Looking at my shelves, I realized that the vast majority of the titles in my office had been written by white folks. Many of them were some of my favorite formative texts. I came of age reading Louisa May Alcott's Little Women and Are the You There, God? It's Me, Margaret by Judy Bloom. I first learned about the power of writing workshops from Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird. But if I'm going to talk about the need for diverse voices in publishing, if I'm going to vote for politicians who champion free speech and school boards who encourage students to read widely, then I also need to cultivate more diversity in my own reading habits. So I've been working on it. I added writing craft books by Peter Ho Davies and Matthew Salesis. I read young adult literature with Nick Stone and Nicola Yoon, and I've fallen in love with Muslim retellings of classic tales by today's guest, Uzma Jalaluddin. If you are a reader, I encourage you to take a look at your own shelves. Whose stories are missing? BIPOC writers? Queer writers? If you're in a book club, do the same. We're fortunate to be alive during a time when the publishing industry is beginning to correct some of its past oversights. And let's be honest, it's racism. Let's read to learn the multitudes contained in one another's stories. With that, let me tell you about today's guest. Uzma Jalaluddin grew up in a suburb of Toronto, but her favorite place in the world is the nearest bookstore or library. She's the author of Much Ado About Nada, a second chance romance inspired by Jane Austen's Persuasion, and the upcoming Three Holidays and a Wedding, 
a multi-faith holiday rom-com co-written with Marissa Stapley. Uzma's debut novel, Aisha at Last, was a Goodreads Choice Award finalist, Cosmopolitan UK Book of the Year, and Publishers Weekly Best Book of 2019. Her second novel, Hanukkah Carries On, was an instant Canadian bestseller and named a Best Romance Novel by The Washington Post. It's currently in development for film by Amazon Studios and Mindy Kaling. Uzma is a former contributor to the Toronto Star and has written for The Atlantic. She lives near Toronto, Canada with her husband and two sons, where she also teaches high school. Uzma Jalaladeen, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you so much for having me, Henry. So before the pandemic, I 100% fell in love with your first book, Aisha at Last, a modern take on Pride and Prejudice, that story of Aisha and Halid and their Darcy and Elizabeth banter was so much fun. And oh, you, thank you, yeah, you recasting it in a tight knit Muslim community in Toronto really, really worked. And since yeah. since then, I know you've written uh, two more books, including this most recent one, Much Ado About Nada. Great title, by the way. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I cannot wait to dig in and like just talk all things rom-coms. But first, for the couple of listeners who maybe haven't had the absolute delight of discovering your novels, would you just go ahead and tell us your story? Sure, I'd be happy to. Oh God, tell tell me tell you my story. Uh, okay, so I live in Toronto. I'm the daughter of uh, immigrants from India. I'm married. I have two teenage boys. God help me. Uh, <laughs> uh, I have a day, like a lot of writers. I have a day job. I'm actually a high school teacher. I teach English, and I've been doing that for a really, really long time, and I really enjoy it. And I'm a writer. So, as you said, my very first novel came out in 2019 in the states. Uh, Aisha at last, a retelling of Pride and Prejudice. And my second novel is Hannah Khan carries on. And my third novel, which is about to come out June 13th. Uh, is Much Ado About Nada. I have a fourth novel that I co-wrote that will be out in September, and it's a multi-faith holiday rom-com called uh, Three Holidays and Weddings. Uh, and 2023 is a bit of a banner year for me. I also uh, wrote my very first play, uh, which debuted in Montreal, and it's called The Rishta, and it's a really funny family comedy uh, that kind of makes fun of the arranged marriage trope. What else can I say? I don't have any hobbies. All I do is read and write. <laughs> I don't have much of a life. I always say I'm a very boring person. Um, I have a very large South Asian family in Toronto, so we spend a lot of time together kind of uh, just hanging out and I probably watch too much TV, so I'm always watching something or other. Lately, uh, my husband and I have been, you know, basically binging the third season of Ted Lasso. Don't tell me what happens if we're not done Don't yet. Don't tell me. I haven't watched the last one. Don't speak of it. I we will never either. talk of it. But I, I, I'm actually, oh, I'm afraid it. to watch it because I don't want it to be over. I know. I love it so much. It's such a shot of sunshine. It really is. It's such a such a feel-good uh, show. And in keeping in that vein, the other show that I'm watching is the second season of Abbott Elementary, which I'm really enjoying. So good. So good. Both of those shows are so just good. so good. So I really I have a soft spot for that, uh, which I guess is reflected in the kind of books that I write, uh, books that have an interesting plot but are eternally optimistic, which I think is, you know, essentially every romance novel because you know what's going to happen at the end. Uh, I have a, I have a bit of a optimism, which I guess is a good thing to have as a, as a teacher, right? Like you want to be optimistic about the future. 
Yeah, yeah. I I read your books, and when you said that phrase, a jolt of sunshine, I was thinking, oh, that's exactly what she does. Because, okay, maybe we know what will happen in the end, but we also, you make us doubt that we're ever going to get there. And it's like, oh, no, that's not, you put up so many obstacles, and so even though I think I know how it's going to end, you have me doubting all along the way. Well, I mean, as a writer, you got to make your characters work for it, right? They got themselves <laughs> into a pickle and they have to they have to try things to get themselves out of that that mess they've created. Absolutely. So your novels do traverse a lot of ground. Um I mean, they deal with like big issues like intersectional identity and the the confluence of like where does culture end and religion begin and how can those two things exist that you know, search for belonging, um, and of course, love. Were you always uh, romantic? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I grew up being raised on a steady diet of Bollywood movies, and they're all romantic comedies, essentially, or they're romantic dramas, but there's definitely love in them. Uh, love that goes sideways and love that, you know, triumphs overall. So I think, uh, and then, of course, as an English teacher, like, I always read the Shakespearean comedies, and they always end in weddings, right? Or the tragedies, which end in beheadings. Either way, <laughs> <laughs> there's some kind of romance angle. <laughs> I love that at the end of the most recent Little Women they tell her, or the editor tells um, the Joe March character, it can either end in a wedding or death. Those yeah. are the only two choices for a female heroine. <laughs> I know. That was so funny. <laughs> I love so, that movie. Yeah, so that reimagining was fantastic. No, I, I think essentially uh, the, the joyful ending in a romance novel, is, I also grew up in, in the 90s, so like the classic rom-com era, and I watched all of those movies, and I think... You know, like the media you consume when you're young, it really stays with you for the rest of your life. Yeah. I mean, I think it was Edith Wharton who said something about everything significant a writer has to learn, you know, happens before the age of like 16. Oh, God. That's so depressing. I hope that's not true. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Come on, Edith. I was just cleaning out my, my parents' house. They, My mother has sold it and moved to an apartment. And I have been unearthing um, artifacts of my own growing oh, up in the 90s nice. years, including yeah. just like notes folded into football shapes that I open up hoping to like have a glimpse of my young wisdom. And just again and again, I'm just, I can't even believe how ridiculous I'm obsessed with different, you know, the whole side is like scrawled with like, I love this guy. I love that guy. Like, they're different boys sometimes along the sides. I have nothing of any significance to say. So I very much hope that Edith Wharton was not right about that. Otherwise, I'm in trouble. <laughs> yeah, I think we all, uh, the, the texting culture, which has replaced the notes, you know, they don't know what they're missing. Finding, like, all of those funny diary entries and letters and, like, little messages that you send to your friends. I, I know I have a whole stack of them. Yeah. They're really fun, but they're very embarrassing. So maybe they're not missing much. Yeah, super much. Um, okay, so your new book, Much Ado About Nada, is about Nada Saeed, a nearly 30-year-old engineer who's still single, still living at home, and in a bit of a slump because she's had a failed business venture that I won't get into except to say that one guy's a jerk. Um, <laughs> as the book opens, we meet Nada and her best friend who are attending like a large Muslim conference where they run into Baz, the one guy, the one person Nada hopes 
never to see again. I've heard this advertised as a modern Muslim spin on Jane Austen's persuasion and that absolutely I see um, – I mean, you even reference it in the book. I, I see that. But it also has a title that calls back to Shakespeare, right? A yes. comedy. So which is it here? <laughs> okay. There's a story here. I'm going to tell you the story. Excellent. This is a story about the way that books will evolve over the course of your revisions. So um, oftentimes I start writing books without kind of having a title, just sort of knowing that I want to write about certain themes. And believe it or not, one of the major themes that I wanted to tackle in this book was the idea of female ambition and the way that ambition oftentimes, uh, you know, especially for women who come from marginalized backgrounds, they face so many extra challenges when they're running after their 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 dreams and their ideals and things like that. That was where I started. I ended up writing a rom-com as usual, but that was kind of the base <laughs> of it. Uh, and I think it, it kind of filters in through that. But my after I came up with that thematic question, I really wanted to write a mashup of Jane Austen's Persuasion meets Much Ado About Nothing uh, by Shakespeare, because I'm a big Austen and a big Shakespeare nerd. And I wrote that in mind. Like it was, a, I actually named Baz as kind of an homage to Benedict. Um, and uh, Nada had another name in the beginning. I couldn't really find like a good Muslim bee name for a woman, but it was fine. Uh, and then as the book evolved, I, I finished my entire first draft. I sent it to my editor. She liked it. And then I just realized that the second half of the book didn't work. It just didn't work because I was trying too hard to, to make this book into something that it didn't want to be. And I, I spent last summer ripping it all apart, Ugh. almost doing like a first page rewrite, but definitely a middle of the book rewrite. And I took out, you know, like at the end of Much Ado About Not, uh, Much, Much Ado About Nothing, sorry, the original Shakespearean, there's like this wedding scene and there's like this kind of bridal switcheroo where, I don't know. Anyways, most people don't know about this. It, it gets, it gets very niche. And I had that kind of gender flipped. It was, it was complicated, but it just didn't work. It just didn't, I could feel it in my bones. There's like this writerly instinct that kind of kicks in when you're deep in the guts of a book and it just didn't work. And I had to erase it. I had to take it all out and let oh the book gosh. be what it wanted to be. It wanted to be persuasion. It didn't want to be much ado about nothing. Uh, but the, the main character's name was at that point, Nada. And my husband was like, you know what? You should name the book Much Ado About Nada. Because Nada, of course, is slang for nothing. nothing. And it's funny. And I can't resist a good pun. So it's, the title is Much Ado About Nada, but it's persuasion. It's a great title. And that's such a fabulous story. You must have been, like, pulling your hair out, though. Yes. To, to, yes. It's just, I mean, um, I think it was Barbara Kingsolver, one of her very early books, when someone talks about the... Um, we always talk about the heart as being like the center of where love is. And someone makes the the comment like, no, 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 it should be the liver. Because when you try to sew up a liver, it just like falls apart in your hands. And I, I think about what you're huh. describing, this wow. like like the heart of your book, like that in the beginning, it might have felt like a, trying to sew a liver and it's coming apart in your hands. Yeah. I'm impressed yeah. that you like steadfastly carried through with that. I could have either left it and it was fine. The book would, would have been great. Uh, you know, it worked, but I just, it felt wrong. And I, I don't know how else to put it. It's just like this deep writerly instinct kicked in. And I was like, no, this doesn't work. And I know it doesn't work. And if I don't fix it now, I'm going to hate myself. And so I made way too much work for myself. I'm pretty sure my hair went gray and I rewrote <laughs> the book in a month. Uh, and you know what? I'm really glad I did. I think it's stronger for it. 
even if it doesn't have, I'll get to Shakespeare later. This one's going to be Austin, but. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to hold you to that. Um, that's excellent. I mean, books do have a mind of their own. I once tried to write a story where I got like these two people together, but the guy kept falling for the best friend. And that was not what I was trying to do. Yeah, yeah. Actually, the same thing happened with Nada, too. I got to 30,000 words, which is almost 100 pages, and I realized that I had been writing about the wrong protagonist. Like, the, the love interest was wrong. Uh, so originally, if you know the Zane character, he he was the love interest. And I was like, no, 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 no. It's not Zane. It's Baz. Baz oh. is the love interest. Uh, so I had to rewrite it as well. But you know what? This is all part of the writing process. It's, it's like you, you kind of go in with a really clear idea, and then... Life happens, uh, writerly instinct kicks in, and the story wants to be what it wants to be. Zane does have sort of a smolder. I mean, when they're throwing he does. the hijabs at his feet. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I wouldn't mind a little more Zane. But, but no, I mean, Boz is so, oh, oh my, you guys, you yeah. have to read, you have to read this book, you guys. Um, okay, so another of my favorite features of your novels is the way you write intergenerational and extended families. Your stories are chock full of well-intentioned parents and nosy aunties and spoiled cousins and busybody neighbors and enthusiastic moms who convince young people to join planning <laughs> committees for conferences. You, you write these entire communities and this lends a truly realistic texture to your stories. But how the heck do you keep track of all these people? <laughs> This is a function of being the eldest daughter of an immigrant family, of a large immigrant family, and being part of a pretty tight-knit community. Like, I'm uh, growing up, I was surrounded by, uh, you know, all of my parents' friends and family, and we would go to the mosque and see, like, more friends and family, and uh, it's, it's just the way I grew up. Like, I lived for a long time with extended family, like at various points in my childhood. And so I'm just reflecting on the reality of not just my own life, but I think so many people who come from these uh, immigrant families where we're just surrounded by a community. And community is really important because especially in the beginning, I know when my parents moved here, they didn't have a lot of family. They came later. And so their community was their family. They, the community was the people they celebrated uh, their triumphs with and they mourned their losses with. Wow. What must that have been like to come? Was it your dad's work moving them? Was was your mom kind of along for the ride? And how horrified was she by that snow and the lack <laughs> of all these other people? Like, what's her? What's their story of having come? Well, my dad, like a lot of uh, immigrants, came for school. So he did. His, he actually first landed in the states. He did his master's uh, in Texas. Uh, when he first first arrived, and then uh, eventually, you know, he he finished his master's. He's, he's a biochemist. None of the chemistry abilities rubbed off on me at all. <laughs> I'm an English teacher. Uh, but when he when he was finished his his degree, he basically was like, okay, well, what's the fastest way to get immigration? And his friend had moved to Toronto and said, listen, Canada is looking for, you know, uh, people and you can uh, apply for a job here and try to get immigration. And that's why what he did. And so he moved to Toronto um, and my mom, essentially, my, my dad went back to India. My mom and my, my mom and dad got married and he sponsored her for immigration. And 1974 is when, 1974, 1976, something like that is when my mom came. Actually, she said that the first few years in Canada, which were very quiet, I think was a nice change for her because in India, she was just surrounded by so much family and drama and, you know, 
uh, aunts and uncles and cousins. And when she came here for a couple of years, it was she said it was just very peaceful and she really enjoyed it. <laughs> but the winters were brutal, especially back then in the 70s. You know, Canadian Toronto winters were pretty bad. Sure. There was some sort of crazy storm when my sister was like, I want to say like 1976 or 19- there was a big storm here in Cleveland. And yeah. they ta- told stories about her going out in her snowsuit and just like... It, sinking. It was sink like it was, it was above her head, just like drowning yeah. in snow. Yeah. Hey, hey there. there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. See you soon. So amid all these characters that echo your own family, it sounds like, um, as someone who's read all of your novels, I love the Easter eggs and like the callbacks <laughs> when Nada, oh, good. when Nada and Halima are just hanging out in their hotel room and they're like thinking of ordering from the quote halal burger place. I'm just yeah. like, oh, that's Aiden's restaurant. And then um, when Nada meets the wedding planner and the wrestler life coach, I am just like laughing my face off thinking back to Aisha at last. Um, quote, what's your favorite color and why is it pink? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you that. Oh, um, God, she's so funny. <laughs> how, do you, how do you decide, like, which characters are going to just, like, come skittering back? Or is that where they take over, too? Yeah, they, they completely take over. They just kind of show up and they're like, okay, so this is my scene to sit down, Isma. I'm going to take this over. Writing them is just such a joy, though. Like, whenever, when I, when Masood and Hafsa were back, I was like, okay, I'm going to do a matchmaking event at this conference. Who else is going to run it? It's got to be Hafsa. It's got to be Masood. I have to bring them back. It was very fun. <laughs> Oh, I was so happy to see them, those two. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, so, so something else that all three of, I mean, speaking of, you know, wedding planners, like all three of your main characters are contending with this pressure to get married. I mean, I've seen this in my own family. My maternal grandmother was like practically considered a spinster when she waited until her late 20s to get married. You know, I mean, you write these yep. charming Muslim rom-coms, the focus on marriage totally works. But I wonder, um, do you still see this like alive in your community, like with arranged marriages and Rishta proposals? Is this like something that we're hearkening back to in the past? Or do you still see this alive in uh, your extended community today? Uh, you know, I, I think the search for a partner, the search for like in, in the the Muslim community, especially the people who are kind of like observant and practicing, they're definitely thinking about marriage. But just in any community, like the search for a partner is, I think, something that 
is so relatable and it takes takes over so many people's lives right like think about the 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 success of like online dating everyone's like on all the apps trying to find a, a date or a partner or even just someone to hook up with and uh I, I always ask my younger cousins this because i've been married for a really long time I've been married so long. I like online dating wasn't even really a thing when I got married. I know we missed <laughs> way all too the long. Fun. <laughs> we missed all the fun. I don't know. I think it's pretty brutal out there from what I, yeah. I hear from my friends who are single. Um, and my, my, uh, my younger cousins and nieces and nephews who are in their twenties, they, they tell me that, yeah, there's still a lot of pressure to get married and to settle down. Um, my cousin got married a few years ago and she, she said that she felt it like she, she got married when she was 25, which is incredibly young, but she, she was like, no, 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 I, 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 and it, a lot of it was, yes, it was her parents, but it was also very much internalized kind of pressure from the South Asian community that she was, that she grew up in, in Toronto. Uh, and now as someone who like I'm the mother of teenage boys and I just keep thinking I I just want my kids to feel free to get married and to settle and pair you know whenever they want I don't think I'm going to put the same kind of pressure on them uh, but I think this is a function of like a lot of um, young people who maybe are the children of immigrants you know so it's kind of a leftover of, of the expectations that their parents had from their own countries and, and that being said the expectations in like uh, like India and Pakistan have probably also changed as well um, but you know the uh, the the search for a life partner I, th I think is one of the most important decisions that you will make in your life because it determines so much of how the rest of your life will go not to say that you know the person that you either marry or spend some time with if it's not a permanent situation it has to be kind of like uh you know lead to uh, a life sentence unless you want it to <laughs> but i think it does determine how a lot of your life kind of un unravels a lot of our most dramatic stories are uh revolve in some way about around our families or our love lives sure I really am just sort of in love with the way that these classic retellings really do um, just align really well with um, the Muslim the Muslim community where you where you put them. Um, you know, I, I I think another thing that the characters in your books I might say all three, but I have to think about it. Um, the the perception of their Muslim identity. I'm thinking of Khalid. In Aisha, you know, he chooses to to dress in conservative robes, and even you know, Aiden and Hannah and Hannah's cousin, they encounter that really nasty guy who's like, "Go back to your own country." When they're outside yeah. of that ball game, and I mean, Nada has that quote. Let me find it. Um, oh, she's just talking about the internet and like the memes. I want to say this is back to probably to when she was in the conference and she's like, you know, the memes are really cruel, but that's the internet. Everyone has to be mean because they're all lonely and sad. So there's this, this you yeah. know, there's this theme though about like pushback that they're getting just for, for being themselves. And, you know, I'm thinking about your books. These are beautiful retellings of these classic old stories, but, you know, have you yourself experienced any pushback from people either in person or online for your worship choices or the way that you've taken these stories, these classic white people stories and, and made them your own? Have you experienced any of that pushback? So the pushback has been kind of interesting. Uh, I would say because I feel like I'm one of the few people who are writing these stories, 
sometimes the pushback will be very subtle. So it'll be a, more of a, I'm not sure if this book is really for me. I'm not sure if I'll really be able to relate to this book. Uh, just because most of the characters in my novels are brown, they're South Asian, they're children of immigrants, or they're Muslim. So I, I think, I feel like I, I deal with that on a really subtle level where people just won't pick up the book if they see like a, a, a person in hijab on the cover. Uh, whereas I grew up, you know, reading all sorts of books that were completely outside of my experience. I'm not a white woman. I'm not a, you know, a black man. I'm not a, you know, indigenous person. Like I love to read stories based in other cultures personally. But a lot of times, because many people have grown up not expecting to be the cent like expecting to be the center of the narrative, um, you know, oftentimes they're a little bit hesitant. That being said, I also have a lot of like really um, supportive and kind fans who you know email me and say you know really nice things, and and they're not Muslim and they're not brown. They're maybe they're uh, some other ethnicity, but they found something that's relatable. Whether it's the family dynamic, or they enjoyed the humor, or they thought it was really romantic, or maybe they're not Muslim but they're of another faith and they thought it was really interesting the way that I tackled faith. So it's it's a little bit of both. Uh, you know, and sometimes I feel I, I get a little bit of pushback from my own community. And what happens is that there's an immediate, I, I, I feel like this, I, I'm, I get like this too, because you'd never see yourself represented. When someone tries to tell a story steeped in your community, you're immediately get your back up because you want to make sure that they did a good job. You want to make sure that they're not stereotypical stories or they're tropey stories or they're stories where the main characters uh, engage in a lot of self-hatred, like a lot of internalized, uh, you know, what we call the colonization of the mind, like the internalized self-hatred of being a Muslim. Like, oh, well, I was Muslim, but then it made me unhappy. And so now I've uh, forsaken my faith and now I'm free, you know, free of the oppression of, <laughs> of all of that. And so, <laughs> which honestly is some people's genuine story, but those are most often the stories that have been told about Muslim characters, which gets tiring and boring after a while. Uh, so I, I think some some Muslim readers kind of approach me warily unless they've read my books, uh, and, and and so it's it's I kind of have to I got to win everyone over. Sometimes it's exhausting. That that sounds <laughs> exhausting. I think it yeah, is. No, I'm, it can I'm, be. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm thinking about that that notion that you have to somehow like write a character that pleases everyone. I mean, for instance, take Hafsa. She's one of my favorite, like ridiculous characters, right? Like, so if I'm if I'm like within your community, I'm like, oh, why did you write Hafsa to be spoiled? Girls who have rishtas aren't spoiled. Like, uh, if, yeah. if I wanted to take a critique, but th they're missing out on like the gorgeous essence of that character, and that we want them to contain these multitudes. Yes, oh, that's, that's really exactly. interesting. Yes, that's I I kind of enjoy writing my ridiculous, complicated annoying characters they're fun because i don't think that you know all the muslims need to be perfect and all the like non-muslim i'm not writing propaganda i'm just writing real life i i, I want to show like I, I think all of my female characters are quite complicated and nuanced and sometimes like even in hannah khan carries on she she didn't make all the right choices she behaved badly for parts of the book and so i would badly. say <laughs> yeah and, and same with nada like she did she she was a brat she she was unfair in certain certain moments because they're they're human beings. They're not like caricatures of like the perfect Muslim woman. Well, and uh, I'm also is, thinking about the way know. Hana. This is in your previous book, Hana Khan carries on when she's working in the the 
the radio station and they say, okay, you can do a story. And the stories that they want her to do are like either about terrorists or henna tattoos or like, like, yeah. like they're just like this. <laughs> so when you speak about like the stereotypes, like she's like, um, maybe I don't want to do that. Uh, yeah. are, there are other stories we can tell. Um, but you're right that if there aren't a lot, if there's not a big enough choice out there, then then folks are going to try to hold you to this ridiculous standard. That's frustrating. Yeah, I mean, any type of, uh, even on TV shows, if you have a brown character, like a, a an overtly South Asian character, at some point they're going to break out into a Bollywood dance. Like, it, it's just the law of TV. <laughs> <laughs> Always badly choreographed, by the way. Like, <laughs> you, know, you know, something else you do really well is that you write people of all ages. Um, you write big families. You write... Um, people of different religions and faiths and also different functioning bodies. I mean, Hana Khan's father is struggling um, with the aftermath of a difficult accident. Um, in this book, Nada's brother is, you know, he's had to start using a motorized wheelchair when he's 14 years old. And something I love in both of these examples is just like you said, like the side characters could take over the novel with their larger narratives. These are just part of the story that way that we don't actually have like chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters about how difficult it is to sit in a wheelchair we simply have the reality that someone's body is behaving differently and thus they sit in a chair and then we see him trying to date we see him getting a job we see him sneaking around so i love the way that that bodies are just alive in all shapes and sizes in your books i know that you're known for being someone who's representative of the Muslim community, but I also like the way that you represent different bodies. That's really gorgeous. Thank you for saying that. I, I really tried. I really, it was important for me. I have a family uh, who who are disabled. I have fam very close family who are differently abled. Uh, and I've watched their struggle all my life. And it was important for me to talk about how someone within my community, which is you know, oftentimes when we talk about Muslims or we talk about South Asians, it's, 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 it's such an emphasis on race and, and religion and culture. But we also have the same problems that, you know, every, mainstream society has where we have differently able uh, bodies. We have neurodivergent people. And I wanted to show that representation uh, within this diverse communities. Like I always say this, I always want to write about the diversity within diverse communities. And that includes the different bodies that we have. Yeah, I love that. Uh, the diversity within the diverse community is the fact that maybe the parents expect children to be doctors and engineers, but here's this one running around being a poet or dropping out of college yeah. <laughs> that we seeing people with, with differently abled bodies was as a breath of fresh air in, in your books. I also have to give a shout out to, would you say Bisma or Bisma? The, Bisma. Yeah. Bisma. I love, I love the conversation that she and Nada have when they're just talking about love and marriage and, uh, you know, uh, Bispa says something like, you know how they say that when you do something you love, you never work a day in your life? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not as like, not this bullshit, you know, yeah. and that's what she's saying to herself. And Bispa's like, well, it's not like that at all. I'm tired all the time. Sometimes I fantasize about packing a suitcase and running away. And I'm just like, I felt so heard and seen by Bisma. I'm like, exactly. <laughs> yeah, she she might have been kind of uh, echoing something that I felt on many occasions in my life as a very tired mom and a very tired teacher and writer. Oh my gosh, I think I told my um 
my husband once. He's like, what do you want to do for Mother's Day? I'm like, I want to leave you all. I want to go to a hotel. <laughs> I want to sleep in. And, and I want you to leave me alone. And he oh, thought that was so that mean. Sounds... But I'm like, are you kidding me? I have just described every mother's dream. Oh, my God. My dream is for everyone to just leave the house and let me have the house for to myself for a few hours. Mm-hmm. But I think I like the hotel idea better because then when you stay at home, you just think about laundry. Uh, laundry. No laundry. Yeah, exactly. It never ends. It never ends. Well, so you said 2023 is a banner year. So this second novel coming out, Three Holidays and a Wedding, I'm getting like some Hugh Grant vibes there. Can yes, you give us like the you. sneakiest little sneak peek there? <laughs> For sure. So this is my very first co-written novel. Uh, I wrote it with a Toronto-based writer, Marissa Stapley, who wrote, uh, actually uh, her last book was a Reese Witherspoon book club pick. It's called Lucky. Um, and we teamed up to write this this novel, which is a multi-faith holiday rom-com. It's set in the year 2000. Uh, and this is a real thing that happened. Uh, Hanukkah, Christmas, and Ramadan, the Muslim month of fasting, all happened in December. And so we all celebrated these huge holidays within days of each other. And I just remember I was a you know much younger person, like a kid, really. And But I, I still remember it, it felt so magical. And I, for the first time in my life, I felt kind of included in all of the holiday conversations, the discourse that was happening in December. Uh, and it was beautiful. It's like, you know, all the shelves, the, the stores were bare because everyone was like frantically buying Eid gifts and Hanukkah gifts and Christmas gifts. Uh, but it was really, really beautiful. And so we thought... Let's write, uh, you know, a, a, a novel, basically like like a Hallmark type movie, a Netflix type movie, uh, that that encompasses the spirit of these three holidays being celebrated together. Oh, that's excellent! And did that really happen in the year two thousand? I don't remember yeah. what year it was. The Y two K year or the year. After the year the, before. Okay. Uh, sorry, it was the December of 2000. Gotcha. So it, it was around that time. So uh, Eid, uh, which is a celebration after Ramadan, uh, was December 28th, which means Ramadan started in the beginning of December, it lasts a month. And uh, Hanukkah was, I believe, December 21st or 22nd to the 29th. And of course, Christmas is Christmas. So it was all around a couple of days of each other. They were all celebrated. Oh my gosh. We will absolutely have to take a look and be on the lookout for that. But if you're a teacher and we're coming up on summer and these two books are already happening, then it makes me think that there's probably another one percolating or that you're taking requests. So I'm thinking like When Harry Met Sally, 10 Things I Hate About You. Those are just two that are just coming to mind. Like, do we... If we can peek behind right. the curtain. I'll add it to my list. What are you working on? <laughs> what can I see on your desk there? What, show me just like a page. <laughs> um. uh, my, my desk is currently piled with uh, paperwork and novels that I need to read. But um, I'm always thinking of new stories that I want to explore. And uh, to be honest, I'm actually thinking of switching gears a little bit. You know, as much as I love romance, I love romance. I'm also a big fan of mystery. And I'm wanting to dive into mystery for a while. I feel like cozy mystery, kind of like upmarket cozy mysteries having a moment because of like Ryan Johnson's Knives Out and The Glass Onion and, you know, um, Poker Face, which was such a fun show as well. And I've always been a huge fan of uh, classic, uh, the golden age of detective fiction, Agatha Christie. And so I'm, I've got an idea percolating. Nothing has really happened yet, but I hope to start writing my very first uh, murder mystery novel. That's excellent. My, I have two teenage daughters and then a, a 10-year-old son. And um, absolutely, they love, they cannot get enough of mysteries. Those are just yes. flying off 
the shelf. I wouldn't know a thing about writing them, but Agatha Christie would be a good place to turn, of course. Definitely. I I, I think I read, I went through a, a real Agatha Christie phase when I was younger and I read all of her books, like the entire canon. And, yeah. And uh, I got really good at uh, picking out who the killer was. So I, I mean, writing a mystery is, is like, it's intense. So you have to write a solid outline and figure everything out before. So I don't know. Let's see what happens. I'm, I'll be on the lookout for that. Um, oh, my goodness. I could talk rom-coms all day and mysteries, but I do have to wrap for you. So I always end with just some, you know, playful questions. These first ones are just multiple choice. You just pick one. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, cappuccino or chai? Oh, cappuccino. Mountains or beach? Mountains. Dogs or cats? Cats. Tim Horton's Donuts or Biryani Poutine? <laughs> Neither. <laughs> Neither? Oh, my gosh. Okay. Oh. Biryani Poutine was a joke I invented, <laughs> and now everyone thinks it's a real dish, but every South Asian is like, how could you? You're, you're kicked out of the club. And uh, to be honest, I love Tim Horton's tea, but I'm not a huge fan of their donuts lately. Tim Horton's, you can do better and you know it. All right. Um, I, li- I like Dunkin' Donuts, though. That's nice. <laughs> um, let's see. Baklava or halal gummy bears? Uh, baklava. Um, butter chicken or onion pakora? Ooh. Okay, now I want an onion pakora. <laughs> <laughs> Your books make me so hungry. All They really should come with, like, just a side of paneer or just Agreed. something. All right. Um, yeah. Let's see here. The Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan romantic comedy You've Got Mail or the Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan romantic comedy Sleepless in Seattle? Oh, You've Got Mail, I hands mean, down, of course. Of course. Right. I mean, yeah. But yeah, although Sleepless in Seattle, I mean, you could put yeah, a mystery maybe. on that. Um, maybe, yeah. <laughs> are you an early bird or a night owl? Uh, I am a night owl, but lately I have, I feel like I, I've uh, rewired my brain and I'm a turning into an early bird. I don't know what happened. It was Ramadan, actually. Ramadan, getting up for a month at like five o'clock in the morning, did it for me. It's hard to be a night owl and teach high school. Yes. I am also a night owl and I also teach high school and I'm just wrecked in the morning all the time, as are my students. We're all wrecked together. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's, I've wanted to be an early bird my entire life and I think I finally did it. So I'm really, really proud of myself. Are you a risk taker or the person who always knows where the band-aids are? I always know where the band-aids are. It's important. All right, these They're are... in my wallet. Oh, that's a good place for them. <laughs> yeah, I keep them in my wallet. Yep. Smart. Yep. All right. These are a few fill in the blanks. If I wasn't working as a teacher and writer, I would be a... What would you like to be if you weren't what you are? I honestly have no idea. I, I don't think I would be anything. I would just be there. I would just exist. Um, is there, oh, I would be a librarian. Yeah. Writer adjacent. Yeah. Writer adjacent. All right. Yeah. I was going to say podcaster <laughs> for Hannah. Oh, I can do I podcasting. I think you could totally yeah. do podcasting. Um, what's something quirky that people don't always know about you? It could be a like or a love, a pet peeve. What's quirky that people don't know? I know you said you're boring. I don't believe I... it. I... I, I'm very boring. I used to be into, oh, I know how to crochet and knit. Is that quirky? I'll, I'll go. That's a, that's a dying art. Which one is the crochet and which one is the knit? One is like one stick and one is two. Yeah. Crocheting is one stick and uh, knitting is usually two. I'm not very good at it and I haven't done it for a very long time. 
but I, I kind of want to be really artsy. So I, I went through like an embroidery phase. I went through a crocheting phase. I knit half a scarf and a hat. Uh, and I sewed like a dress when I was younger. So I, I want to be more artsy than I am. But the only art that I've done consistently is writing. So <laughs> writing takes up a lot of the time. Too. It takes up all the time. Yeah, that's right. When we were cleaning out my parents' house, um, I found a blanket that I started weaving for my then baby brother. He's 40 now. <laughs> Never finished it. I asked him if he wanted it. He's like, I'm good. <laughs> uh, what's one of your favorite books or some of your favorite books, either to read or to teach? Well, I, I love Jane Austen. Um, I have to say, I love teaching Macbeth. Like every year, whenever I, I'm lucky enough to teach grade 10 and I read it again, I'm like, this is like an awesome story. There's so many interesting conversations that you can have with Macbeth. So those are the two canon books. Um, what's a book that I'm enjoying reading? I love Emily Henry. Uh, her, anything that she reads is, you know, A-OK -okay by me. And uh, I'm also read Toronto writer um, Carly Fortune's latest, Every Summer After. That was a really fun book. Uh, Sonali Dev wrote a fantastic Jane Austen-inspired uh, series based in the South Asian family. Uh, the one my favorite was Recipe for Persuasion, um, which is also, of, of course, inspired by Persuasion. I love that book. Uh, yeah, the, I, I, I mean, those are just a couple that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, another romance writer I like is Lucy Parker. She's a really fantastic writer as well. Isn't it nice the writing community? is um i don't know it's bountiful it is like when you when you start to explore and meet people i'm i'm just even on this show just when i meet people i'm just like you're delightful like and there's so many wonderful <laughs> i mean it's it's a really great place to be i feel lucky to be in the community you know what most of the writers i've met i would say probably all of them have been just really cool interesting people maybe it's a function of being a writer and always being kind of an observer uh but there are very few jerks I haven't met any. Everyone I've met has been awesome. Okay, um, last two. Favorite ice cream? I like French vanilla lately. Though I, I did polish off a carton of pistachio, so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Pistachio's mm -hmm. good. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't send pistachio away. I, I, would, I would take that with a spoon, yeah. Yeah. All right, last one. If we were to take a snapshot of you, just a picture of you really happy and doing something you love, what would we see? Oh, I'd be sitting on my couch watching Never Have I Ever while drinking a steaming hot cup of chai and eating a chocolate chip cookie that I made because I'm a baker. Oh, my gosh. Can I come over? I promise. <laughs> yes, I... you're invited. Let's oh, watch it together. And let's Marie, watch the last the episode <laughs> of season one when they're going to spread oh, the ashes and John McEnroe makes an appearance and Ben so says, amazing. I'll drive. And oh, I love I that episode. everything about that episode. Me I just too. sometimes watch it just when I need a just to pick me up. It's genius. The writing that on that is just so genius. Happy. Yeah. Well, Usma Jalaladin, thank you so much for making time in one of your previous books. You wrote, quote, keep chasing the story in your heart and you'll go far. Thank you for chasing the stories of your heart and for sharing them with us. Oh, thank you so much. This was a delight. Oh, right back at you. Folks, Uzma Jalaladin's most recent novel is called Much Ado About Nada. Great title, great book. You can find it 
wherever books are sold. And I'm also talking to the white people. Dudes, just because there's someone in a hijab, get out there and read about other people other than yourselves. Your book clubs are going to love this. You know you love Pride and Prejudice. You know you love You've Got Mail. You know you love Persuasion. So get out there. Um, Folks, you can find it wherever books are sold. To everyone listening, we're wishing you love and light wherever the day takes you. Be good to yourself, be good to one another, and we will see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgroup and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts. And I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style. And together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling and all in approximately seven minutes.